<sighs> Time for a little snack before bed. Well, hello, Chris. Uh, Brian! Jesus, you scared the shit out of me! What are you doing in my living room in the middle of the night? Well, Chris, we haven't recorded digital noise yet this week. Time to make the digital donuts, as it were. Look, it's it's so late, man, and I'm exhausted. Do you really expect me to record right now? No, Mr. Cox, I expect you to die. What? Nah, just recording is fine. Beer? Always. Okay, then. Digiverse, Brian and Chris here with another scintillating selection of digital noise for you right here at oneofus.net. That is what we do. We are up, up bright and early. Or late at night, late depending night. on when, yeah. I've lost track of when, when we're actually, what, what, where are we? The, what? Co- the consciousness formerly known as Brian and Chris will be appearing <laughs> on Digital Noise today. There's no proving that we exist. Even the EKG is flatlining. That's so. true. That's true. Well, this is the Blu-ray and DVD uh, review podcast that gives you everything on the menu with an additional Easter egg or two of irreverence and vulgarity. I want to let you know that Digital Noise, just like all of our content on One of Us, is available uh, on iTunes. Just search One of Us in the podcast section. And hey, did you hear the news? You asked for it and you got it. We are officially on Stitcher. Did you get it? Did you hear the noise? Did you hear the noise? My job today will be to point out and explain the puns in case you missed them the first time. Wow, we've got we've gotten to that level. <laughs> we we have reached that level of punning that. Well, we actually... it's audio. I can't do sign language. Right? Yeah. No, I completely understand. But if you are averse to using the iTunes, which we found out there are a lot of people who are, it was very surprising I, to me. But I, yeah, I don't know that. I, apparently, that's a thing. Apparently it is. But we are now on Stitcher, stitcher.com slash podcast slash one of us net. Hooray! Aren't you lucky? I still don't know what it does, but you guys go crazy. There you go. <laughs> you can see, you can listen to us there, so. I am not above giving you the things you ask for, even if I haven't researched them or even know what they are. True. I, I, can, I can vouch for that. I'm a giver. That's, I'm like a tree. I'm like that tree, man. I just, I give and I give. It's true. You're a catcher. <laughs> wait, wait, what? Hold on. <laughs> Anyway, next story. Uh, next story. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter, this show individually, at DigiNoiseCast, at D-I-G-I NoiseCast, and then the site, of course, at OneOfUsNet. Uh, the website is also on Facebook for you to like, facebook.com slash OneOfUsNet. And you may have noticed that we put up the, uh, actually, yeah, we put up the first of our Worst of 2013 commentaries with Grown Ups 2 absolutely free. We suffered through Grown Ups 2 because you asked us to, and then we didn't even charge you to listen to the commentary. So now it's kind of like your responsibility to, like, rent that movie. Don't, certainly don't buy it, for God's sakes, but rent that movie and watch it along with us. In fact, it's it's kind of a human rights violation if you don't at yeah, this point. I agree. I agree. And we did, like, we may be overexerting ourselves a little bit here. We would just give that shit away. But we did, and you can enjoy that. And I'm certainly, you know, if you don't own the movie, which means you're a good person, and you don't want to rent the movie, I'm certainly not advocating pirating it, but I am going to quickly and clumsily move on to the next thing, which is that you should become a subscriber to oneofus.net, and especially right now as we are finalizing our uh, incentive package. 
Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to tell you guys about it. It is freaking awesome. Um, and yeah, so you can do that. You can give one to $25 every month or just make a one-time donation. You can cancel at any time. We really, really, really appreciate that. Yes, we do. And we will show you that we appreciate it by taking pictures of our butts. Yes, butt pictures, butt no, stuff. No, we're, don't hurry. We're not doing that. That's not part of the incentive <laughs> package. We don't want to chase people away. <laughs> Well, it's time to reach out to the Innisfair and receive transmissions from you, the listener. It's the part of the show where we crack open that most questionable of coffers we call... The Letterbox. You've got mail. Yes, Torgo, the Letterbox. Thank you so much. Our first question of the day comes from Joe Rios, who says, Favorite montage scene in any film? Go! Well, I'm going to start off by saying this. I mean, as everyone knows, I'm a huge fan of martial arts films, and naturally... Like, Are you really? Shut up. And naturally, <laughs> like, the montage scene, as far as I know, it was invented in martial arts films, because that's the first time I was ever consciously aware of it, with watching the training sequences that were in, like, every single Shaw Brothers movie. I guess uh-huh. Drunken Master is still my all-time favorite. But, you know, the sequences where you see him doing badass funny shit, like, uh, to train and become a badass. But it's not my favorite. I'm really going to have to say it ends up a tie... Between the great Goodfellas montage, you know, oh the Layla, yeah, yeah, the unplugged Layla, so amazing, and then the beginning of Up, yes, of course, oh my gosh, that's a tie. There's an entire movie in just in that in that montage, and it's funny when when you said you thought that they were invented for martial arts films. I was just imagining early 20th century. Uh, film director Sergei Eisenstein directing a martial arts film. Man, Battleship Potemkin, if there was a, ended up being a fight on those steps, that would have made that movie worth seeing. Cause as it is, it's kind of garbage. The right? Flying Monks of Battleship <laughs> Potemkin would have been a great film. I'm pretty sure that actually is the name of a Hong Kong wire foo film. Yes. Nice. Nice. Well, for me, I mean, you can't go wrong with, uh, the, the rise of Scarface montage in, in Scarface. I think. That's one that's been parodied and has been recreated so many times. And, uh, that song, Push It to the Limit. It's just like, it's such a, it's such a perfect encapsulation of everything about the eighties and such a great way to cut out like another hour of that movie that could have been. Um, also, Rocky Four, the entire movie is a montage. I, I knew ahead of time that was going to be one of your picks. I've said it again and again and again. All of the Rocky movies are boxing films. Every once in a while, interrupted by a montage. Rocky Four is a montage, occasionally interrupted by a Rocky movie. It's funny that in Team America, the montage song says at one point, even Rocky had a montage as if it was like just a one-off thing. Yeah. As opposed to like three quarters of some of the films. As, as if it were, there was some exception in that franchise where it was just like, no, we're telling everything completely straightforward and narratively. We're not doing it visually at all. Well, I thought for sure you were going to pick Dirty Dancing. I'm just shocked. Well, I guess I'll just have to put that movie in a corner for now and uh, move on to our second question. I would like to throw out special notice, though, to Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Oh, sure. And the end of Donnie Darko. Nice. Good list. Good list. Uh, Brian Kersey asks, what actor slash actress do you think deserves a moment in the spotlight? And I'm assuming they mean either or, because I don't know a lot of transvestite actor or actresses. <laughs> yeah, but, I'm sure they mean uh, I'm sure that, I'm sure there's some great ones that are Glenn still just Glenda waiting. are just great. What yeah. happened? Yeah, just waiting for a moment in the in the spotlight for Shimself. Um, Shimself. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw out John Boyega, who I'm kind of disappointed hasn't already had a big uh, like push for major stardom. He was uh, he was Moses in Attack the Block, 
And he was one of these young actors that I thought was just so talented and so full of, uh, of just raw potential that I'm, I'm still waiting to see, um, I'm still waiting to see him get his big push. In fact, I saw one of his Attack the Block co-stars in Dom Hemingway, uh, the guy that played Hi-Hat, who was like the gangster who ran that particular block. Uh, and it was just like, oh, I can't wait to see Moses in something. So <laughs> off the top of my head, John Boyega is somebody that I'm really pushing for. And obviously, I'm a little bit biased on this next one, but uh, my boy A.J. Bowen. Like, just come on. Come on. That guy has to get a bigger fucking movie. Like, he, he is, is so great. fucking good. Yeah. I like A.J. as well. Um, you know, I didn't even go as obscure as you did. I kind of went with those sort of actors that have gotten some noticeable uh, supporting roles and really deserve a shot at the big spotlight. Or just like, they should be A-listers by now. And the first one, of course, for me is John Hawks. Oh, yeah. I just yeah. think is absolutely incredible in everything he does. I'm not biased just because he's an Austin boy. <laughs> he is an Austin boy. He is That's an right. Austin yeah. boy. In fact, he's friends with Bo. No shit. Yeah. I had no idea. So, uh, I, I've never met him, mind you, but. Yeah, neither have I. Uh, I, I love his work. I think it's so good, especially Winner's Bone really comes to, to mind as something that was like, holy shit. And the so sessions. Yep. And the other is Clifton Collins Jr. Yes. Who is slowly, it, roll by roll, inching his way up more to being a household name. But wow, he is so good. Mm-hmm. He's one of those guys who looks like he was going to just stay a character actor, but he's got huge range and I think he's wonderful. Yeah. Just saw him in Transcendence. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I completely agree with you there. Yay, questions! Yay, questions. Thank you for taking the time to ask us the questions. You're welcome. Oh, you meant the people who actually asked them. Yeah. I thought you meant me, and I was like, I just read them off, but that's fine. I'll take credit for it. Uh, we're going to close the letterbox and shove it back under the bed. I think Get is where we keep the letterbox. Nobody wants to see your shit for another week. <laughs> and we're going to move on to the reviews. And, of course, we want to remind you yet again that everything we talk about, there will be a little image underneath uh, the recording on the post. If you click on that image, it'll take you to Amazon. Even if you don't buy that particular item, if you get to Amazon via our link, no matter what you buy, we get a portion of that sale. And it really does help us keep providing you with content. So please, please, please keep doing that. Really, really appreciate it. But we're going to start this week with The Hobbit, The Desolation of Smog. Smog. Oh, my God. Smog, why you had to desolate everything? I just built all that shit. <laughs> it was about that time I noticed Smog was a giant dragon living under the mountain, and he said, I need about tree fitting. <laughs> oh, Smog, what are you doing? You got you can't fool me. You're that clever dragon trying to get that tree fitting. <laughs> Nobody I think I've been watching too many South Park reruns lately. what we're talking about. No. <laughs> uh, uh, this is, of course, the second film in the second trilogy uh, by Peter Jackson and company based on J.R.R. Tolkien's legendary fantasy film works. This one at the box office, despite some predictions early on that maybe things were starting to flag a bit for the series, pulled in almost a billion dollars. It did okay. Yeah, it, it, it outsold... Fellowship of the Ring and the Two Towers. So I think um, I wouldn't be surprised if suddenly they announce, hey, we just found another Tolkien book. <laughs> We're Jesus Christ. I, that is my worst nightmare. I just want to I want to shake Peter Jackson and be like, dude, it's okay to leave Middle Earth. It really is. It's you so can funny. Go. For me, I want to go in there and put like leg irons on him and just say, <laughs> you know what? This is all you're doing now. But no, we, we saw the lovely bones. Uh-huh. No. You're, you're going to just do Lord of the Rings films. Don't now. get me wrong. I'm not saying those are good films. I hated the King Kong remake. 
All I'm saying is if I have to sit through another goddamn movie of set in Middle Earth, I'm going to lose. I feel like all the magic is draining out of this place. I'm just like, when can I go? Uh, oh. We're going to have to take opposite sides on that. Let's do it. I will take every single second Line of, in the of, sand. Of, of, uh, of Middle Earth that I can get. In fact, the only disappointment for me for these is that I still have to wait to see the extended edition, which, of course, the moment it arrives in my mailbox. Yeah, why are we even reviewing this? Because I'll take a second to watch it again, Ugh, all which right, I fine. did. You know, I don't always watch the stuff if it's been less than six months since I saw it in the theater. I don't always watch it again, except these. These, there's no question that these are going back in and I'm watching it You're watching it, it right now. Turn it off and just review it, for God's what? sake. What? It's on my tablet. It's not <sighs> bothering you. God damn it. Oh, Bilbo, you're just so wonderful. I love you. I want to Put your pants back on. Your little fairy toes. Ugh. No, 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 no. Wrong fetish. It's just adorable. This is wrong. Uh, Bill, you know, I actually like this better than the first one. I will agree with that 100%. I think that the action is a lot better. I think that the humor works a ton better. Um, there's not the pacing issues that the first one suffered from, like yep. that interminable extended opening sequence Fuck that. Uh, in the Shire. It just went on for way too long. It's funny, when you, when the dwarves start, stop grab-assing and start actually, like, fighting monsters and stuff, how much better these movies get. Agreed. And this is starting to set up some things in there where, where Bilbo has actually become a real hero. I mean, it's funny, re-watching this, I felt like I should be taking notes for experience points, because he was beating <laughs> the hell out of all those dwarves for killing shit. I mean, he is, I mean, he's, like, killing spiders left and right and orcs. I'm like, damn, Bilbo's more of a badass than Frodo ever was. It's kind of true, yeah. I mean, there's there aren't as many close-up shots of him just, like, making tortured face either. So. True. Well, he's not, like, the ring is, like, like Sauron's not in power yet, right? Mm. Which in this movie is known more or less as the necromancer, although it is the first time they reveal, shocker, that they're the same person. <laughs> I actually didn't know that in the first one. I haven't really? read the book. I haven't read uh, the Hobbit. Well, the, they, the Necromancer was a character they added for this, basically. To oh, give okay. it more of a tie-in to the Hobbit. God damn it! To, to Fellowship of the Ring. To make so they had to add direct. material to maybe pad out the fact that three movies are covering one book. Pretty much. Okay. <laughs> but, but it works for me more than it didn't. I thought this. They also in this one clearly went back from the using primarily CG orcs in the first one and mm. went to more using practical and the difference pay off. Oh, yeah. I mean, always, man. I mean, we just watched... We just watched R.I.P.D. and watched scenes where people with very minimal makeup are created completely by CG. People, yeah. or what I should say is, people with very minimal differences between them and an actual human being are created entirely in CG, and it's like, why wouldn't you just pay the $12 and have a real person there? Because it makes all the difference in the world. Yeah. I, and, you know, alright, so the one thing I want to say in this movie that I felt like was kind of a letdown, was all, was indeed an added thing, but not entirely. They add the character completely new of Tariel, which is played here by Evangeline Lilly, who is a wood elf, and then Legolas from the first movie appears, obviously a much younger version of him, since this is the prequel, who at this point wants nothing to do with dwarves or anything. He's kind of an arrogant, rich boy dick. Which, by the way, the fact that he's younger makes no difference to anything, because elves don't fucking age at any, we never see elves age in these movies, so it's like, oh, he's a younger version who looks exactly the same. <laughs> As he did in the last they one. do eventually. I mean, like, let's face it. No one would say that Legolas and uh, what's his name uh, who plays uh, Hugo uh, Weaving. Yeah, Hugo Weaving yeah. are the same age. Clearly, no. Hugo Weaving's got no. But nobody would say either that the Legolas in this one looks any different from the Legolas in the no. original trilogy. He's still young enough that he hasn't really visibly aged very much at all. No. Plus, you can't take your eyes off his eyes, which are just 
Incredibly beautiful. You'd think Elena Bloom would have at least a couple of crow's feet after being completely chewed up and spit out by the movie industry. Well, every elf in this whole series is so Olin Mills, you know, photographed every time <laughs> they, like, see him. Who can tell? They're just, like, they've, they've whited out all the, the features. It's stuff. like all their senior photos. <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, but the problem really is not either one of them. Their action scenes are great, and I think both actors do a terrific job. Definitely. It's just they try and set up a very awkward love triangle. Yeah. Between them and one of the dwarves, who is, once again, the only dwarf who doesn't really have any facial construction stuff. He doesn't have any makeup on at all to make himself look more dwarfy. Which dwarf is that? Uh, The the guy who, well, the guy who who is hooked up with her. I don't remember the name of the... Because none of the fucking dwarves are determined from any other dwarf. I can just by looking at him. I just can't remember all the names because there's a fuck ton of them. Murder, 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 murder. Wait, are we doing Jeff Bridges from Rory? Bomber. Get on to the bridge. Later today, you're going to know why that's hilarious. <laughs> uh, but it's just, it's one of those things already, right? When the, when they first see this, when you first see this dwarf, you go, why is he the only guy who doesn't look like a dwarf? You know, he just looks like a really handsome dude who's a little short. And then you find out why. And this one, because they want him to have a love affair with an elf. And it's uncomfortable. I hate to say that I'm not the sort of guy who gets upset by different races getting together at all. It's Unless just, they're magical races. Unless they're magical races, and that <laughs> shit is just wrong. That's against God's will. Hey, man, I know your, your, your fantasy father told you that it wasn't right and you were brought up that way, but man, you gotta learn to be more progressive about these these magical races getting together and, and, and it's, it's, it's how these fake worlds go around, man. Look, humans and, and elves together, no problem. They're similar enough heights and appearance, I can see it. But a dwarf and an elf, they don't even have that fucking class in Dungeons and Dragons. That's how unlikely that shit that's is. Really, that's really where the prejudice comes from, is I don't want to have to get a new character sheet in Dungeons Dude, and Dragons. they have half ogres in D&D. There are no elf dwarf I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure my D&D character is a half ogre. Yeah, well, that makes a lot of sense, Ayo. actually. <laughs> Anyway, I really did enjoy this. Obviously, the, there are some people who feel the way you do. Just like, I'm just getting bored with the Middle Earth. For me, this is one of my favorite fantasy universes that there is. And I'm willing to indulge in it as long as Peter Jackson wants to make it his playground. And in fact, uh, you know, there's a lot of good extras on here. Encouraging you to sort of get into the, the spirit of things. There's 37 minute production videos. Uh, a look at the inside the cutting room. Uh, uh, part two of New Zealand, home of Middle Earth, which basically takes you around the locations that they went to. This forty-one minute thing of uh, Peter Jackson invites you to the set, which is you know just basically following a whole day on the set, and it, it's interesting. Everybody's really funny. It shows how much camaraderie there is on the thing. How it's like these people are there for years making yeah. this trilogy together. They are definitely much more than so than your average film have formed a family, and so they form rituals and things they regularly do, and contests and games, and it's a lot of fun to watch them do this stuff behind the set. Yeah, I mean it's it's one of the best archived behind the scene production processes of any film i mean between the stuff that you're seeing here on the blu-ray and the stuff that they put out online like they did a lot to document the behind the scenes process on on all these films and you know full disclosure the reason i'm getting bored with these is really had to do with the first hobbit film i felt like that was where i had reached that point of like diminishing returns it was just like okay well I know like I, i know this landscape but i'm not really in love with these characters that you put into it so i'm 
like my interest in the world when the people moving through who I'm basically moving through this world via are not that interesting. It, you know, it loses me. But I will say again, I think this movie did a better job and it fixed a lot of the mistakes of the first one. Uh, you know, we haven't really talked about Smaug in the Desolation of Smaug. It looks incredible. But it is. It's an incredible piece of, of digital effects. And again, like as much as I harp on, you know, practical monsters and all this, like I'm not anti CG and I think. The smog creation is really incredible. And when you have Benedict Cumberbatch's voice, I love the back and forth between him and Bilbo. I think that's such a, a great, you know, that that's something new. That's, you know, a, a hobbit, a, you know, main character interacting with a creature of that size Dude, who's digital. Bilbo and, went up like four levels just by talking to that guy. Right. I'm and just saying. Right. And having an actual conversation as opposed to just being a battle scene like that. That's really intriguing and engaging. And I want to see more stuff like that. I don't want to just see more battle stuff. I want to see more, like, characters interacting with this world that they live in and not just trying to fight the other things in it. And I do want to warn people out there who are always like, well, I'm not going to double dip. I'm going to wait for the extended edition. They've taken a different tact on these in the original series in that there are different bonus features on each version. So if you get if you get just the extended version, you're not going to be getting a lot of these pretty goddamn good bonus features that are on this one. You'll be getting different ones. So if you're a completionist like me... You're going to be irritated and have to buy both. I was going to say, like, <laughs> I was like, to, to, to silence the critics, let me just say that you will have to buy both. For, oh, wait, no, that's not going to help. I, I just, you know, I mean, yeah, I will. I'm as irritated as you that they're doing it that way. But certainly, you know, there'll be yet another person in the comments will be like, whatever, you don't understand wanting to make money. Huh, cash symbol. It's like, yes, I get it. You, you <laughs> sh- I get it. You, you scummy little capitalist. It doesn't make it any more less shitty that people do that anyway. How do we still have Reaganauts in our comment section? <laughs> I know. Those crazy. people look. Anything that someone does to make money is okay because they're making money. How? What a nice life you're going to have. You're right. Grown Ups <laughs> Two commentary is now forty nine ninety five. Huzzah! Well, moving on from the desolation of Schmaug, we're going to talk about August Osage County. You can't fool me, August Osage County. You're that clever smog the dragon. You're just dressing up like Meryl Streep. Wait, maybe it's Meryl Streep dressing up like Smog the dragon. She could, man. She can do anything. She that's, is pretty That's amazing. the power of Meryl Streep. But this is obviously the... Uh, Either way, she's got to give me her, my, that 350. That's, yeah, <laughs> I need about 350. Uh, this is the story, uh, this is a drama, uh, from last year, one that wasn't up for, I feel like people thought it was going to be up for more awards than it actually ended up, uh, being nominated for. You'll be, I know this was really going to flabbergast you, but Meryl Streep was actually nominated, nominated for an Oscar for this performance. What a shocker. I know. She's only been nominated like 47 times, and so. And the thing about this movie is that the people that are in it are indeed acting their fucking asses off. Yeah. But. This is one of these problems I have with often with uh, drama theater when it's translated to film. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's something to be said for the intensity of, you know, being right there, right in front of you watching these actors. The, the claustrophobia stage. helps it. Yeah. Uh, when the, when it's like all about people backbiting and hating on each other and just yelling and family problems and shit going horribly wrong. But when I for some reason, when it translates to film, I find it just kind of disgusting. Well, OK. I think I know what you mean because, you know, it's like when you cook something and you steam it in a bag. Sure. If you poke a hole in that bag, it doesn't work anymore. Like, all that heat has to be contained. And I feel like when you see something on stage and you're just trapped there with it, like, it can get really intense. Like, I can imagine some of the scenes in this movie being a lot more intense, like being kind of trapped in a theater, you know, on the one stage and just looking through that fourth wall. But when you start being able to go to all these other places and create these 
cinematic scenes as opposed to scenes that really serve the dramatic narrative, you get a diffusion. And here the story that involves uh, uncomfortable family reunion. Super uncomfortable. Of uh, Meryl Streep who is on – who is uh, – has degenerating throat cancer or mouth cancer, so she's on a fuck ton of, of, of pills for it and acting like a goofball. Which is the mind. most obvious metaphor for your mouth getting you in trouble that I've ever yeah, seen. That's true. I hadn't thought about that. And then her husband, Sam Shepard, who is an alcoholic poet, but who very shortly after the beginning of the film just disappears, like, fuck it, I'm out of here. <laughs> sets, her up with a, sets her up with a young Native American woman to be sort of her nurse and help her around the house and then takes off. But so she calls like, you know, I need the family here and the whole family shows up, including her sister, Maddie Faye, played by the wonderful Margot Martindale, certainly would be on my list as well. of Underrated actresses who need to get more notice. She's been in a ton of stuff and she's great she's, on the Americans. Every time she's on any TV show, I perk up and go, oh, my God, it's Margot Martindale. I love her. Uh, Chris Cooper plays her husband, who, of course, everybody already knows is great. Uh Ivy is played by Julianne Nicholson, who I was really relatively unfamiliar with, but she's quite good in this. The only one who lives locally. Uh, Ewan McGregor and Julia Roberts. Julia Roberts is her older, oldest daughter and certainly the one that has the most in common with her. Mm-hmm. Sort, sort of inherited her standoff bitchiness. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. and a lot of this movie is the two of them butting heads. And uh, their daughter, played by a 14-year-old Abigail Breslin, who's there to experiment. And uh, even worse, Juliette Lewis, who is playing Juliette Lewis, like she always does. As she always does, because uh, she kind of talks like this, and, and then everything she says is really boring. And her husband, played by uh, Dolmer, uh, Dermot Mulroney, who always <laughs> plays kind of sleazy type guy. I can, I can tell you this right now. I can never match the face and the name. I always get it mixed up between Dermot Mulroney and Dylan McDermott. <laughs> I always play that game, and I'm like, wait, is this is this... And then I do that, and then I do exactly yeah. what I just did. Uh, they're, they're, he's just kind of a piece of shit, and it's very obvious right from the start that he is, and she's too dumb to know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then another character who's supposed to be kind of dumb, but at least he's sweet, Little Charles, played by, yes, Benedict Cumberbatch, playing a, a kind of a simple southern guy. with a Okay, Benedict Cumberbatch with a flawless Oklahoma accent proves once and for all that there's nothing that guy cannot do. He Well, except make the fifth uh, estate a good movie. Well, you know. But that was not his fault. Hey, but he got the hair right. Yeah, that is true. <laughs> I mean, this movie goes back and forth from being genuinely interesting, from having scenes of conversations between these people that are, like, fascinating to watch play out largely because the acting abilities involved, to just being kind of cloying, yeah. I thought. Um, there's a turn this movie makes towards the the end that's, like, this big reveal and it's not a big some people have said oh that just pissed me off it's like a soap opera i was like there's a lot of works of classic literature that have that as a plot device so also let's not get carried away also if that's the first time this movie seemed like a soap opera to you yeah. you weren't watching the rest of the movie i just it just here felt a little unnecessary i was like i don't know i yeah by the end of it i was like so what was the point of all that i mean to some degree i feel like i should get something valuable out of entertainment even if it's not making me happy the whole time i should have I, I should have taken something away that felt like that two hours was worthwhile. And I just didn't feel that way here other than, like I said, oh, yeah, you're doing a good job acting. But in the end, I hated almost everybody. <laughs> Here's the thing. This movie works the absolute best for me when it is Meryl Streep and Julia Roberts going toe-to-toe. Absolutely. Because Be- because my theory, and I can't prove this, but I feel like Julia Roberts, as a, as an actress, feels like she has a lot to prove when, you know, she is – 
she's one of those names that can when you say like name the, the the best working actresses. Most people will say Meryl Streep immediately, and then three or four down they'll mention Julia Roberts. I feel like this was a chance for Julia Roberts to kind of show that she can, in fact, stand toe to toe, and it makes their arguments and their fighting so much more organic and and just bitter and awesome. Well, we know Julia Roberts for being very good at what she does, which nine times out of ten are playing charming roles where every time she smiles, you smile autonomically America's right sweetheart. back at her. She really is. Yeah. Uh, and I think she's she's really great at Love her. If you hate her, it's because I think you have a bitter, cold heart, quite frankly. <laughs> <laughs> or you're just too cynical for your own good. She really is a good actress, but she doesn't generally take challenges like this. I mean, Aaron Brockovich is really the only movie that comes to mind off the top of my head that I would consider to be a real challenging role that she's taken, and she did fantastic in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, did she win the Oscar for that? I think she did. Um and she is, once again, she's she's terrific, and you're right. That's the highlight of this film. But everybody else seems kind of like a background noise. Right, and that's that was, that was where I was getting is basically once you're away from the conflict between Julia Roberts and Meryl Streep, it just kind of feels contrived. Like, all of the other drama just feels like, what other, like, conflict uh, convention can we put in here? Like, oh, he likes younger women. Oh, he's got this problem. Oh, they're, they're not getting along. They don't talk to each other anymore. It's just like, yeah, this is just running down the list of, like, the conflict playbook. There's too many characters for a film that their dramas don't add up to much, and you all you really want to see is this main drama. Right. No, so. absolutely. And I, and that's, I think that's kind of what hurts the movie overall, though I will say it's almost, like, it almost just goes completely, it's, you know, balanced out. It's completely compensated for, in my opinion, by Meryl Streep and Julia Roberts. Like, that was, like, that was making me physically uncomfortable to hear them yelling at each other because they were selling it so well because it was so authentic and i have to and there's a reason the only two oscars this movie got nominated for were best actress and best supporting actress right right no agreed uh, and i i even so even with all that with it, that was the intensity of the performances for me it wasn't even really what was happening because at the end i came out of it just dissatisfied like so what happened what did those characters gain from that what did i gain from that it's like i just feel worse than i did when i started <laughs> yeah. No, it's super heavy and it gets very maudlin. And I think it's another one of those situations where this is a movie that you watch. Not not exactly the same thing for me, but like when I watched American Hustle and I'm like, this is a movie full of great performances that I will probably never watch again. True. And that's exactly how I feel. This is a movie with two really outstanding performances that I will probably never watch again unless I need to write something specific about the the greatness of Meryl Streep and Julia Roberts. That is correct, sir. Well, we're going to depart August Osage County and talk about paranormal activity, the market ones. <laughs> the market ones. Our biggest disagreement ever that you guys have gotten here on a movie. Yep. yep. It's, and I, it's, it's one of those things where I feel like I'm starting to go one way with this franchise and it's, it, there is that, that, you know, two paths in the yellow wood and you went one way and I took a completely different path. Uh, you know, I, the thing is with this, is that I can't really come out and say, oh, man, this is great. You should, wow, if you ever dislike the Paranormal Activity series, now's when you get started watching. I'm not saying that. <laughs> I, I've never said that. <laughs> I, I like ghost movies. I like ghost movies a lot. They're one of my favorite horror genres. And I can put up with some terrible, terrible shit just because it's a ghost movie. In fact, I would say Paranormal Activity 4, I actually sat all the way through. Yeah, <laughs> despite it's not the, good. The, yeah, I, I, I was haunted by that movie ah, spooky how fast you come up with those <laughs> uh but 
I, for me, I thought that this was really one of the best ones they've done yet. Is it, you know, changing the face of this sort of found footage horror? No. But it does make some welcome changes to the series, one of which is it does away completely with the static blue camera sitting there, uh, just watching everything, waiting for something to pop out of the negative space. I've just done away with that entirely here. In fact, I'd love it if I found out that was going to be true for all future sequels, although I seriously doubt it. <laughs> but, Didn't they move the camera around more in the fourth one? Uh, I feel like the camera was... They still had a lot of that just sitting there stuff. Hmm. Whereas it's just not here. They it's this, don't do it this, this is a one. testament to Paranormal Activity 4 that I can literally remember nothing about it. <laughs> there was a lot of... Remember there was all those static shots that were just showing the living room with the connect on? Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Those went on forever. It's like, like we don't know and what's going to happen. That was happen. actually kind of a cool concept to add into things, but not but, make the center of the entire movie. Yeah, and they and they didn't do anything unique with it. It was nope. like, we're just waiting for something to happen. We know exactly what it's going to be that's happened, and then it happened to know. Okay, that yep. there it was. But uh, I actually enjoyed this. I thought the characters were much more entertaining and animated and funny than in previous films. I liked that there were little elements of Chronicle in here. The idea that this guy, as he's starting to become possessed by this whatever it is in the paranormal activity world, at first is really just kind of getting superhuman powers. And it's really fun to watch him start to, like, you know, go, wow, look what I can do, only to watch, it, watch himself start to degrade from it. I had a lot of fun with this more than I didn't. It was a lot better than I thought it was going to be, even while still suffering from many of the same trope problems that the previous Paranormal Activity films have already dug into the dirt. Yep. And I, you know, I feel like I've, I've said a lot about what I don't like about this movie. I feel like it is, you know, screenwriting by focus group. And I didn't, I didn't feel the same way about the characters. I didn't really find, I mean, I did appreciate that chronicle aspect that you're talking about. But I just didn't find any of the actors particularly appealing. I felt like they were pretty one-dimensional. And the the thing that happens at the end, which I still won't spoil for you because I don't believe in spoiling movies just because I don't like them. Yes. But – Which the, everyone else listened to what he just said. Yeah. It's not okay to spoil something just because you personally didn't like it. Yeah, I don't like that mentality. There's There's a lot of – circulating mentality right now about spoilers, especially with Game of Thrones going on, that I heartily disagree with. But that's another discussion for another podcast. But anyway, the thing that happens at the end, the kind of new newest convention that's thrown in, is on par to me with sending Jason to space. Except that I liked Jason in space. I was going to say, I liked Jason in space was awesome. But you reach, it's it's a benchmark for reaching a point of desperation, I guess is what I'm trying to say. It's when the franchise gets to a certain point, and it has to start pulling out things like this one does, I'm just like, okay, well, clearly I'm not supposed to be taking these movies at all seriously anymore, but at the same time, how do you justify some of the scary religious stuff if I'm not supposed to take it serious? I don't know. It To me, it was just, there was they were trying to have their cake and eat it too, which I feel like is a, a phrase I keep coming back to recently mm, with cake. movies. Maybe it's because I just love cake. But uh, but I did not love Paranormal Activity, the marked one. So there is my circular review of the film. Well, I came down on the side of thinking this is probably my second favorite of the whole series after three. Uh, and unfortunately, there's really not a lot extra here. Um, there's a collection of deleted scenes that they just title found footage. And there's not a lot of those as it is. So. Uh, if you're getting this because you really liked it and you hope there's going to be a whole bunch of cool shit, uh, you know, and supposedly this is the extended version, but let's face it. Not, this is the extended not version? Not by much, and you won't really notice the difference. What? So, yeah, this is just if you haven't seen it already, pretty much. I got so, you. Fair enough. Well, that was Paranormal Activity, the marked ones. Now we're going to dive into some releases from 
uh, a company that's kind of new to the scene, sort of. Actually, they've been around for a while, but they've just started to kind of market themselves with bigger agencies, and that's Olive Films. And Olive Films releases a lot of completely forgotten catalog titles. I mean, I mean, there's really no other way to put it. Like yeah. stuff that people probably haven't seen in 40 to 50 years. And the first movie we're going to talk about, which is the only one on this list I didn't see, is Cry Danger. I'm so sad that you didn't get to see this, because of the set of these that they put out that we got, this was by far the best Damn one. It. And the only reason you didn't is because I had already loaned it to Bo at this point. Oh, <laughs> I was right like, on. oh, here you go, man. I remember you saying you were going to get stuff from them, and I, I guess I Working assumed you had already gotten this stuff, too. So I'm sorry about that. No, 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 not at all. This is a 1951 film noir. God, I love film noir, so I admit I'm a little noir. biased. I'm thinking about going out right now and just taking a hose to the streets and make it, give that, like, wet uh, noir look. Sheen. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, and apparently it was considered to be a minor classic, but there was like problems with the prints that existed or something like that. And, uh, there was, it never got much of a re-release until just recently in 2011 when they managed to restore it by the UCLA Film and Television Archive in cooperation with Paramount and Warner Brothers, uh, founded by the Film Noir Foundation. Aren't you excited there is such a thing as the I Film Noir Foundation? I want to work for that foundation. Uh, they found, they got this print made from two 35 millimeter acetate composite master positives, which means it looks fucking phenomenal. And it really is a great movie. It's one of those movies that almost every line anyone utters is just pure fried gold. You know, (laughs) you're just like, oh my God, especially this guy who called DeLong, played by Richard Erdman, who's sort of the alcoholic buddy of the main character who's constantly sort of like joke making references to the fact he's a severe alcoholic, but in the way you would do it in film noir, like, whatever, it just makes me cool. <laughs> it's really funny. You're Dick Powell, who's a long-time character. Actor. Oh, wait, wait, hold on. Let me try one. Uh... The only time I ever like to look at my reflection is in the bottom of a glass. That's something like that. Awesome. Yes. Um... Uh, Dick Powell plays Rocky Malloy, who was sentenced to life in prison for a robbery and murder that, as far as we know, and as far as he's saying, he didn't commit. Part of the mystery of this is, is he telling the truth? And everything we can tell, as far as we can tell in here is that, yeah, he is. He certainly seems very serious about it. But this witness who's come forward, DeLong, played by the erstwhile Richard Erdman, uh, has came forward and said, look, uh, he was with me, or at least he provided an alibi. They're not specific about, about what it actually was. Um, but when he gets out, the first thing he's going to do is Rocky's like, I'm going to find out who actually did this because my friend, Danny Morgan, who's accused of the same crime is still in jail and I'm going to get him out of here. The problem is nobody wants anything to do with this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's kind of mystery why he's even bothering because Danny's only got like six months left in jail anyway. <laughs> uh, so why is he so serious about this? Is he really out to get the money? What's the deal with his ex-wife, uh, who is clearly in love with Rocky? Rather than him, or not even ex-wife, his wife who's waiting in a trailer park for him to get out of jail, clearly in love with Rocky and just wants them to just get the fuck out of there and forget about all this. There's all kinds of classic noir stereotypes, but played so well by a number of great actors, including William Conrad playing Louis Castro, nice. sort of minor gangster. It is a lot of fun. There's a lot of surprise in this. If you like film noir at all, this really should be considered a, a, like a classic more so than I'd ever heard it described before. 
Nice. No, no extra features with these Olive films. Well, I mean, this is essentially these are like the archive releases from like yeah. Warner Brothers and MGM. Yeah, but on put on Blu-ray, put on Blu-ray, which is preferable. And of all of the ones I saw, this actually had was the best looking as well. It was the most restored of any of them because it really did look just flawless. I actually do think some of the companies are starting to do Blu-ray now, like MGM and, and Warner Brothers archives. But yeah, Olive Films. I hope they keep doing this kind of stuff. The the one that the the two that I get to see, uh, the first one was the Bamboo Saucer. Which is a science fiction film about it's it's really it's really strange because it takes sort of some of the stuff that we've seen a lot from science fiction in you know like let's say the fifties uh, you know with flying saucers and and all that stuff and and gives it a very Cold War bent and I'm not talking about like Day of the Earth Stood Still where it's like subtext I'm talking about the plot is connected entirely to the Cold War so the, the, basically the story here is that. Uh, these American pilots see a flying saucer. Nobody believes them at first until they realize that Russian pilots have also seen this flying saucer and that it has indeed landed in China. It looks like a, a flying saucer on the SNES. It's yeah, <laughs> it's it's not. It's <laughs> The effects in this are not good. But anyway, so it lands in China and America and Russia send teams to try and recover it, to use it as a weapon before it. So it's like a, a literal space race on Earth. Yeah. And, you know, and it happens to take place in as they keep saying, Red China. So it's like it, the the most obvious parallel to the Cold War I think I've, I've seen. Well, I mean, it's very much about the Cold War, except it's definitely sort of the Hollywood version where it's right. like, why can't we just all get along? Why can't we be friends and be playing for this? Except for the fucking Chinese, they can go fuck themselves. Yeah, that Which seems... is what this movie says. Not only that, but I want to point this out. The next, Both of the next two movies we're going to talk about needlessly slam the Chinese this way. They do. There's something about this period so of time. So weird. They're all like, you know what? Like, we're actually scared of the Russians. They could actually hurt us. But you know what? Fuck the Chinese. We're going to pick on the Chinese, I guess. <laughs> exactly. It's fucking weird. It's like, really? Speaking of Chinese, one of the actors in this you might recognize is a very young James Hong yeah. as sort of the American agent working within China, uh, which I thought was fun. But yeah, this is not a great film. It's more of an oddity that represents a very specific time in filmmaking. And it's a cult film. It, it's very much a cult film. I I personally would only enjoy it, and not even as much, but maybe on the same level as something like This Island Earth. Sure. And it's a film that you're like, I'm really surprised Mystery Science Theater never covered it on that level of the films when they were doing films. That you're like, look, this isn't a horrible film. It's just dated as fuck now. Yeah. And it feels like I would really even enjoy it just as a film more if there were robots there laughing along with it. I agree. But, but I still, I watched it and I enjoyed it for what it was worth. And it is a oddity that this film that's basically Project Blue Book type stuff <laughs> came out in 1968, like yeah. quite a few years before that became the norm. Yeah. And I'm glad I saw it. I mean, there's, again, it's not a terrible film. It's just no. like when I hear how good Cry Danger was, I'm like, God damn it, I saw the bamboo saucer. Yeah, you saw the wrong one. Sorry about And that. then kind of right in the middle of those two, I feel, is Bang Bang, You're Dead, starring Tony Randall of the Odd Couple fame. Oh, now, when it came out here originally, and uh, apparently in Britain, it was called Our, Our Man, Man in Marrakesh. Marrakesh. Yeah. Only in certain areas was it called Bang Bang, You're Dead. And then when it was re-released, I believe, they, they mainly put it under that title. And then all of films released it as Bang Bang, You're Dead. I think that the reasoning was... That our man in Marrakesh made it, and the way it was advertised made it seem more like a conventional spy thriller. When really, this is a spy comedy. This is more. If, if this is spoofing anything, it's not James Bond. It's spoofing Alfred Hitchcock. It's Definitely. spoofing North by Northwest and The Man Who Knew Too Much. Absolutely. Like the the plot could not be. I mean, it's about a guy who is 
in Marrakesh, along with a number of other businessmen. He is uh, an oil company executive um, who, or at least that's what he's telling everyone. And, and he, uh, he, Tony Randall, Tony Randall, and he's playing this 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 oil company executive, and he's there. And it turns out that somebody in this group that he's with, we don't know who, but somebody in this group is actually a courier who is bringing money to buy UN influence. Yes, all these people who came in on the same bus together. Yeah. And there's a whole group of people who are for various, their own motivations are trying to ferret out who this courier is. The problem is, Tony finds himself thrown into the middle of this, partially because, well, he gets to his room and he finds a dead body in his closet, and it turns out it's because he accidentally switched rooms with a beautiful lady. So his madcap adventure literally starts with a guy who's stabbed in the back, North by Northwest. Go. Yeah. Well, no, that, that's, yes, that, that you're making it all too clear. <laughs> I've been uh, hitting the nail right in the back. The, uh, Santa Berger, who plays the role of the beautiful next door neighbor, is just gorgeous in here yeah. and charming. You can't take her eyes off her. And she apparently was a multiple award winning actress, uh, for theater, uh, mainly, but, you know, had, had worked in a lot of films as well. She really is pretty charming here. Makes it worth watching almost alone for her. But, Really, the the appeal ultimately here is Tony Randall as playing a very, you know, very Tony Randall-ish character. Can you believe that guy didn't turn out to be gay? He was, like, so heterosexual, it was ridiculous. Yeah. Like, he had so many kids and, like, married multiple times. Married women, like, a third his age. Yeah, I mean, he was, yeah, there's no question about that guy's sexuality, but when you watch him in these movies, he's so fey. Yeah. That you're like, there's no way that guy's not going to come out here. He's got right there. Right, even Rock Hudson's like, dude, tone it down. <laughs> <laughs> Tony it down. <laughs> but he's very funny watching him as this guy who's this hapless fish out of water scenario who eventually is not, he's not incompetent. He's just like, what the fuck? I'm supposed to be on vacation here, more or less. I'm not even supposed to be here today. Uh, ending up kind of being ex- supremely confident and very good at dealing with this scenario. I had a lot of fun with this movie. It's no classic by any means, but it's the spies like us of its time. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think my ultimate problem with this movie is when you do a film like this, you kind of have to live in both worlds effectively. And I felt like it wasn't quite silly or sharply written enough to be hilarious didn't quite get the balance and it wasn't quite exciting enough to work as a spy film either so i feel like you know it it was just kind of middling but that being said again it's not a bad film and i do think tony randall has some great moments he's got some great pieces of dialogue uh i think with just a little bit of polishing this could have been a really great film but again i'm really glad that i've seen it because it it once again harkens back to the time when it was made it was like oh it reminds us how popular Hitchcock films really were, yeah. that people were doing entire spoofs of it. And did I mention Klaus Kinski plays one of the baddies here? And is dubbed, which I find yeah. really odd that he is the only, like, there are other characters in this movie played by, you know, ethnic actors, but apparently he must have been completely undiscernible, indiscernible, you know, with his accent, because they dub, he's the only person that's dubbed in the entire yeah, movie. It's really surprising. Maybe he really didn't speak English that well at that point. Could I really, be. I really Could don't very know. well be. But yeah, you're right. This is like, it's, it's for a fan of those type of films. They're not really Bond films. They're those spy movies that were more, con- a little more realistic, if you will, like the Hitchcock stuff. Right. And, uh, if you love that stuff, I think you're going to get more out of this than than you would otherwise. Even so, it's not a classic, but it's kind of a cult classic, if you yeah. will. It's like a minor. It's a it's a footnote, but it's a it's a good footnote. Indeed. Well, next we're going to talk about best night ever. Oh boy, talk about your movies with the uh, misleading titles. Misleading titles, because <laughs> uh, 
best night ever, more like worst trick on its audience ever. Yeah. When you watch the trailer for this, you're like going, okay, so it's a female version of The Hangover, right? It's a bunch of chicks going to, to Las Vegas for a bachelorette party and things go horribly awry and there's lots of sex and lots of new. I thought that was just called Bridesmaids. Like right. Well, yeah, they already made it, right? Um, the problem comes when you watch the opening credits. <laughs> When you see, written and directed by Jason Friedberg and Aaron Seltzer. I want to point something out to you guys. We have shit on Friedberg and Seltzer a lot. Because they are everything that is wrong with Hollywood manifested into two human beings. And they are the scum of the earth. But not to overstate things. They're just really bad at what they do. Now, I want you to understand that that's not just us. And that's not just you guys having that opinion. I know a lot of you share that opinion. Hollywood has started to figure that out. Because... They hid the fact everywhere in the marketing that this was a Friedberg and Seltzer movie. Yes, they, they kept did. those names as far away from this movie as possible. These guys' movies have totaled over a billion dollars in sales. And yet they know about the backlash against these guys oh. because they hid the fact that it was a Friedberg and Seltzer movie. Yeah, oh, they totally did. And it's the to their credit, it's the first movie they've ever made that was not just a satire. It feels like maybe on paper it started as one. When have they like, ever made a satire? Let's make a... <laughs> All right, so... <laughs> Films that, that... Failed spoofs. Maybe by saying satire insinuates that it actually is a point anywhere in the movie where you laugh. That they've had a creative <laughs> or independent thought in their entire lives. And that's not true of any of them. Disaster movie, vampires suck, meet the Spartans, epic movie, date movie, scary movie, and uh, spy hard are the entirety of their output and they can all go fuck themselves. Oh, yep. yeah. And the Starving Games, which has come out since, too. Uh, best Night Ever... If anything, I will say, honestly, it's the best of their films, but that's faint praise indeed. Yep, that's damning with faint praise it for really sure. It really is extremely faint praise because there's not a lot funny going on here. I will, I do have to give some amount of credit to these actresses who, unlike in the other films he's done, they've done where they clearly know they're just in a parody and they're overacting like crazy and it's just hollow and embarrassing to watch. These actresses aren't bad on the whole and doing what they're doing. In fact, there's some, there's one montage, montage in here that's genuinely, genuinely kind of fun to watch where they set themselves up 21 dares to do around Vegas and they did it without, you know, people knowing. So they were going up to these people and doing things like kiss a man with a mustache, make guys show their navels, stuff like that. And these guys didn't know that they were in a movie and obviously afterwards they made them sign something. There's a certain amount of appeal. To hey, that. it worked well for Borat, right? <laughs> there's a certain amount of appeal to that because you can tell that they're actually having fun doing doing it but most of this movie just falls back on the most tired of cliches of like let's figure out any way we can go for a gross out or a sex joke here that hey, there's no joke except that look that's gross and there's some sex you know it's just uh. there's nothing really to recommend here like i said i'm i'm thinking of anything i can to defend it like i said it's the best of their films if that means anything to you but it's certainly still worth avoiding like the plague yep the plague of Friedberg and Seltzer. Oh my God, these guys—they have—they must not have any. They must. They, I've pictured them as like somebody put water on Michael Bay at one point, and he formed like other gremlins that came sure. off. Yeah, yeah. If he's like the Gizmo. They're like the other gremlins, the evil gremlins. They're like the one with mental illness. Yeah, the, yeah. yeah. They're like this version or the or the multiplicity clones that are, are like, you know, <laughs> he's. They're four. They've still in got, multiplicity. They're four. They've got his ego, 
like that huge and unstoppable ego, but they absolutely don't have any talent. Bay, I won't, I can't call talentless. He's just, he's just like a whore. (laughs) I just imagine Friedberg and Seltzer from behind the cameras just be like, action, Steve. And they're like folding pieces of pizza into their wallets. Yeah. No, that, that actually, it doesn't make me like them anymore, but it helps the hatred to, to curb a bit. Anyway, um, you know, we're, we got Seriously, more titles. fuck those guys. Fuck those guys. We got more titles to talk about, but I wanted to talk about, I wanted to show you this first, Chris. While I was, um. What you got there, Brian? Well, while I was digging through my rather, uh, voluminous collection of old VCRs and SNES super scopes, let's be real, <laughs> I found this button. You know what? I was just asking the other day, button, button, who's got the button? I've got the button, and I'm not sure what it does, but. Well, what does it say on it? It, it says it was made by Doppelco, and it's, uh, initiate dimensional conversion. I mean, I assume it's it's probably one of those tie-in things for a game, like a controller thing. But maybe it turns a tube TV into a 3D TV. I mean, it does talk about dimensional conversion. You know, what? I'm just I'm going to push this damn thing Wait, and see are, what happens. Are you sure you want? Well, let's see. Let's just see what happens. Hello and welcome to the parallel dimension of oneofus.net, where I am this universe's version of Chris Cox. And I'm this universe's uh, version of Brian. No, <laughs> no hang on, no. no. Brian doesn't exist in this universe because it's really too tragic, I don't want to say. Let's just say there were wormholes and tapeworms, and it was all just unpleasant. Something with a vacuum cleaner and lubrication, I don't know. But uh, anyway, we are here to deliver some of the titles that the, the regular universe just didn't have the time. You know, they're getting kind of lazy in the regular yeah. universe. But you know what, let's just jump right into it, right off the top with one of the big titles this week, which is Grudge Match. Oh, yes. Because, you know... The big thing right now is nostalgia for older actors playing the types of roles we're used to seeing them in. If it's not the Expendables films, then it's those... You remember, what was that one with Christopher Walken and a bunch of other guys recently where they were like Made Men or some oh, shit like that? You know? Wasn't it actually called Made Men, I want to I say? There's a whole bunch of movies like that, though, where it's like... It, I mean, it all started like like two decades ago with grumpier old men. And yep. ever since then, every five years or so, there's like a swath of these things that come through. I think it's that all these aging actors get divorced and they need something to rebuild the bank account. That's probably Or there's it. just some sense of desperation or like their hormone replacement therapy is kicking in something. Well, they just go, I'm still 25, creak, crack, And it only, it only works with those actors that we in our heads have branded as so completely attached to certain types of roles or even in the case of like grumpy old grumpy old man very specific roles uh now grudge match of course takes sylvester stallone and robert de niro and says both these guys two of their biggest moments in their career were them as boxers so why don't we put them as a movie in a movie where they're two old boxers who absolutely fucking hate each other and basically after two matches ended up in a tie with both of them winning one uh and never got a chance to see what would happen with the rematch but now because money has come into it both of them need the cash (laughs) at 60 some years old they're gonna get back up there and break each other's hips creak crack bang (laughs) as i said this was this is the second time this year that i've been subjected to, and I will use that term advisedly, uh, Robert De Niro <laughs> digging up the bones of a much better film because he sure. did this earlier this year with um, the the family, which was him doing basically Goodfellas, and at one point talking about Goodfellas. And one time going, actually wasn't that a good film? And I was like, I hate you so much. And one time actually watching Goodfellas, yeah. if you remember, <laughs> so he watches Goodfellas in the movie and he's playing a parody of his character in Goodfellas. And this is him going back and basically doing. Raging Bull. He's basically doing the Jake LaMotta character, and he's 
the difference between him and, and uh, Sly in this is he's just an asshole. This is this is De Niro playing a very unpleasant, smug version of himself. You know, that nobody really actually has much time for, but he's kind of vaguely successful. Whereas Stallone's character walked away from boxing, didn't want the he's rubber playing, match between the two. He's playing Rocky Balboa at the end of the Rocky series. Yeah. He's a nice guy. Everybody likes him. Everybody wishes he could go back, but realize that's probably not going to happen. In fact, this is. It's, it's, it, that's really what it is. It's Jake LaMotta versus Rocky from Rocky Balboa. Oh, completely. In fact, uh, Rob De Niro's scenes were actually filmed when Raging Bull was filmed. He is that good at transforming himself <laughs> for a role. <laughs> actually, it has to be said that uh, at the beginning... Uh, there are some arch- quote archive sequences from the the two characters' original fights, yeah. and it has some of the worst facial transplant onto a CGI younger younger body model I've ever seen in my life. Well, it's a little, it was a little lazy that every time you see a picture of of like the young uh, Sylvester Stallone as a boxer, it's just the movie poster for Rocky. It's literally, they cut around it, and it's like that shot they used. You're like, come on, guys. That's like an iconic pose at this point. Although I'm sure there is one moment where, um, to, just to sum up how much they hate each other, De Niro has a dartboard in his in his uh, bar, and he's got Stallone's face on it. But I'm pretty sure that's a publicity shot from the Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. <laughs> so I think it's a... So, so yeah, I mean, the basic idea is that Kevin Hart, of all people, and this is one of the issues I have with, with this film, uh, he comes along and says, "My daddy promoted you guys uh, in these ma- in these these boxing matches. Let's do it again. I'll promote it and have you two get back into shape." And and there's a lot of old men training montages. Yeah. But the problem for me is that there's two different films going on here. Robert De Niro is in a very very broad comedy with with um, with Kevin Hart. Yeah. And uh, Stallone is in one of his. Kind of nice, quite heartfelt dramas. It feels like he's like, it was the stuff he left out of the script for Rocky Balboa. Yeah. It really does. Like, it's like if he's in this dramatic film where you start off liking him and you continue to like him. And then your heart breaks for him even more when you find out why he got out of boxing and what it has to do with a still sexy as hell. Kim Bath. Oh, hell yeah. Who appears in this film. Who is aging extraordinarily well. Oh yeah. Extremely well. Uh, I'm not sure how much of that is with the help of science. But <laughs> um, you know, in the Rob De Niro storyline, the one thing they find to connect with a little bit in there is that he also has a connection to Kim Basinger's character. And it should make you start to like him. And you do for a little bit, but then they just keep yanking it away from you. It's like, I felt like this movie wanted to work towards a point where you were kind of rooting equally for both guys. But its biggest failure is that it never gets you there with De Niro's character. It's still, the whole time you're like, you know, I kind of want to see Stallone just beat the holy crap out of this guy. Well, I mean, he, you, you've kind of got a moment of redemption for him that's not really for him. It's John Bernthal from Walking Dead and Wolf of Wall Street, who is a phenomenal actor. And, and he plays... And Mob City that no one saw. No one saw, <laughs> not even him. Um, and, and he's turned up as you know, as De Niro's illegitimate son. This is established in his first line. So that's not a spoiler. Um, uh, we don't waste he, much time establishing that that's who <laughs> his character is. Not much subtlety going on with anything in this. And he's really good in it as, as the son who's trying to forwards this relationship although I, I wasn't quite sure i think he didn't get the script note that this was set in pittsburgh because he 
seem to be playing this as a Boston Southie, which yeah. really confused me. No, I noticed that there was some accent disparity, disparity as well. Well, so. De Niro is supposed to be Irish in this as well, and I'm not really sure. You know, where, where, <laughs> like, why have Robert De Niro playing a Pittsburgh Irishman? Where I'm not. Re, yeah. did nobody get the plot on that. Yeah, I guess. Look, the thing is, there actually is some heart that works in here, especially with Stallone's story, because I don't want to completely bag on this. There is stuff that works here. There's even some genuinely funny moments in here and some some light moments that stick. But ultimately, it's got to lead up to, like I said, it's got to lead to that point where the fight means something to you at the end. And it didn't really, ultimately. I was like, okay, so at best, I'm like, yeah, Stallone's a nice guy. I hope things turn out okay for him. And I really just don't give a shit what happens to De Niro. And add to that, like, some of the side characters, like Alan Arkin, who plays, like, the very old trainer of De Niro, is really just there to be a cliche, and that's it. You know, you might as well be like, Rocky, get in there! What are you doing? <laughs> well, it was actually some of my favorite bits, I have to say, were Alan Arkin and Kevin Hart, mm-hmm. because you've got two guys there that can deliver, a, you know, kind of abrasive, acerbic one-liners, just bounce off each other and I'm like somewhere out there there's a great buddy cop movie between <laughs> those two yeah I mean it's it's way better than the family which you know for me oh, is yeah. I think you've got to you know is where my head is with this and it's not great no it's not horrible it's got some fun bits and it, yet again it proves that Stallone when he you know gears back and and it relaxes into a part he's still a really fine actor and he yeah. understands how to make you know these big knucklehead characters really sympathetic uh, and I'll, I'll always watch him do that because he does it so well i agree with you completely actually stallone can you know has never been as dumb a guy as he appears because nope. i mean it's a speech defect literally it makes him sound stupid the poor guy he's not dumb yeah. at all and, I mean, the fact that he's a multimillionaire probably proves that, if nothing else. I mean, God, he wrote Rocky and yeah. Rocky too, for yeah. God's sake. Yeah, and Rocky Balboa. Yeah. Uh, I actually thought in many ways he outacted Robert De Niro here. He, he absolutely did. De Niro is getting lazy. Yeah, I'll this call is, it. He's I'll just, call it. Yeah, he's just sleepwalking through this, and I, like he has been with pretty much every role he's taken, like uh, with the exception of, uh, uh, what was the one with, uh, ah, the where his kid had serious psychological problems that got nominated for a bunch of Oscars oh, and uh, Jennifer um, Lawrence and um, Bradley Cooper. That Silver Linings Playbook. Yeah, Silver Linings Playbook. Which was the last that and Stone, which Stone I mean, was like very five good. people have seen. Yeah, uh, he was. He's still got the chops, but people keep giving him these scripts and go, "Go off and be Robert De Niro from this film," yeah. and he doesn't seem to have the kind of ironic self awareness slash willingness to still go that extra mile that Stallone does. And yeah, I think you're right. Stallone is, is better than De Niro in this. And, you know, Shockingly. considering the last time that he, that you could honestly say that about Stallone, where he was the best performance. Copland. Uh, that's exactly where I was Where they were go. both in it together too. Go see Copland. <laughs> go, go find a copy of Copland because that's really a great little film. And it make this kind of made me wish I was watching that again. Yeah, that's true. Uh, you know, worst of all on this is when it finally gets down to the fight, it's made, they try their best to hide it, God help them, but there is no way physically looking at this with both these men in trunks that De Niro would stand a chance for more than three seconds in the ring with Stallone, <laughs> who is just like, I mean, they do try to hide it. I don't know if they see G. I, I felt like more that less they touched up Robert De Niro and more they decreased the strength of Stallone because we just saw him in a movie where he was like, 
me like, you're bigger than fucking Schwarzenegger now. <laughs> it's ridiculous. You're huge. But yeah, well, there's he, he like, a lot of weight though. I mean, he was, I mean, they, they, yeah. they say at one point he's 175. Well, no, that was the, the problem that you've got to have, you know, Stallone go down to be a light heavyweight. Yeah. Which, you know, you've got to have De Niro go up to be a light heavyweight yeah. at this point. And he's got to drop a lot of pounds to come up the other way. And then, and then, oh, there's so many jokes about old people not understanding modern culture. And I'm like, ah, I oh, just that's wanna, so I just want to punch both of you when you do that because <laughs> it's beneath both of you. Uh, now, of course, this is a, you know, it was a major theatrical release. So you get a certain amount of extra features on here. There's about 14 minutes of the bull and the stallion, which is just everybody from the cast and crew sitting down and talking about the movie. I like it when they do that, when they actually have them after the fact, sitting around and discussing stuff. I always yeah. find that that's some of the more interesting extras. Uh, there's a Kevin Hart fucking around on set. If that's something you really feel like seeing another Kevin Hart extra. I just don't, I like Kevin Hart, but I just don't think I think he's as funny as everybody else does. It's like, I think his shtick is funny for like very short bursts, but when it, I try and watch like his whole concert, I'm like, okay, you're losing me here. Yeah. Just too much, too much. Uh, there's a, there's a cute post credits thing that has basically Kevin Hart trying to get a match together between Mike Tyson and Evander Holyfield. That's actually pretty funny. Uh, and there's a sequence here where they actually talk to them about it. You know, how do they get, even get these two in the same room together do, again? Does Evan, does Evander Holofield ever wake up in the morning and go, wow, biting my ear off wasn't the worst thing that guy did? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, there's Larry Holmes visited the set, so they talked to him. There's alternate opening, alternate endings. I know, right? The seven minutes of deleted scenes. It's actually a pretty solid package for a movie that most people, aren't, quite honestly, are just not going to give a shit about. Yeah. But you know what? Let's move on to our next title, which is I Am Divine. Now, this was one I was really looking forward to seeing because I grew up watching, I mean, I grew up in Virginia and yeah, you know, Baltimore was right there. Yeah. And so we all knew about John Waters films. I mean, we all knew about it. <laughs> it was like one of those. And there was a lot of like independent video stores in that area at that time. So it was pretty easy to go pick up a copy of Polyester or Pink Flamingos or Female Trouble or what have you. And so sure enough, we watched these completely <laughs> bizarre and disgusting films. And it really wasn't until Hairspray that Waters made a film that was in any sense conventional. That you could take your mother to. And even then. <laughs> yeah, borderline. <laughs> yeah, borderline. But the star of all these films, of course, was uh, Divine, who was uh, born Harris Glenn Milstead, who, you know, he's a gay man, but he uh, did not consider himself a drag queen, surprisingly. One thing I learned from this. Yeah. He's like, that's just my work. It's like, even though his whole thing is being this giant overweight woman role that he constantly played and this documentary about his life really shows him i mean it's it to be fair it is kind of a puff piece oh yeah a little bit because there's several stories about divine that aren't as glowing as the stories that are in here, <laughs> because it presents him to be a human saint <laughs> a human saint that ate dog shit on camera <laughs> But, he was a lovely man. <laughs> but the most, <laughs> important, mother. most important thing about this is it's fun. And there was a lot of stuff I had no idea about him, like how popular he really was overseas. Oh, yeah. Well, that was the, that was the thing. He was in the UK in the 80s. He kind of came along at, at just the right time that he was – video meant that you could see – the entire John Waters back catalogue up to that point just in one block. And that all this that kind of weird early post-hippie, pre-punk stuff just – all arrived at the same time. And you, you could 
suddenly go, wow, this this guy's done something ridiculous and crazy. And then you can move into the stuff where you're seeing Divine really develop the Divine character as more than just this outrageous, outlandish, you know, raped by a lobster, <laughs> shooting people in the head. I had forgotten which about the rape is, is, is the res- the resolution. Is that female trouble? Yeah. Where, with the lobster rape? Yes. Yeah, giant lobster. I had totally forgotten about that. Until <laughs> watching this, I was Scoured like, it from shit. your mind. Holy um, shit. Uh, and that was a movie they made. And just, you know, when the character really arrived in the UK, it was, you know, post-punk, and everything was, like, neon and dayglow and post-Blade Runner. Yeah. And somehow this this figure that just defied all expectations, a morbidly obese guy... Uh, dressed up like uh, Mamie Van Doren, <laughs> um, just yelling cock jokes like a like an out of work sailor. You know, just an obscenity that was just fascinating. And then you cut, you you pull away from that, and you see this you know this guy who had a lot of issues, really was out of his time, out of his depth in a lot of ways, was and was trying to be a legitimate actor. And you kind of. It never explicitly says it, but there's almost this feeling of maybe John Waters is almost the bad guy in this. That John Waters created, helped create the divine character that and really gave Glenn this 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 outlet. But kept manipulating him into coming back. Yeah, to it. I mean, there's no question. Like the money was in Divine. I yeah. mean, Divine was. How many pop albums did they say that were like went like platinum oh, in Europe it was, and stuff? It was, it was like, I didn't even know disc- there was a there was a disco star in Divine. I had no idea yeah. that was a thing. I had missed that completely. But like it was just a hit, a toast. But inside was like you know as this movie tries to say a scared little boy who just wanted to be loved. Yeah, <laughs> as the cliche <laughs> goes. But ultimately, everyone around him is just like, oh yeah, everybody loves him. Like he, the guy himself, is like the most wonderful human being you're ever going to meet. But he was also an idiot because he'd make all this money and he'd give it all away. Yeah. He'd just like spend it immediately on on just buying huge extravagant gifts for all his friends. And he was happiest with just a box of donuts. Yeah. Which turned out to be, yeah, you know, that's, that's the tragedy. So it turned out to not the, be just you know, one box of donuts. Yeah, it's, it <laughs> is that, you know, you know, Glenn died. You know, this is not a spoiler because this is a, a, a posthumous uh, documentary. You know, he died just when he was about to start getting mainstream success. That Hairspray had managed to, you know, take this totally underground figure and prove, well, there's a really talented actor here who is throwing all the conventions, even with what people are expecting from Divine out. And that was really fascinating. That you've got somebody who is that underground and cult who wants to be accepted. And that's, I think that's the most interesting and tragic part of the whole story. Well, he's, it's, he, he was a human contradiction in many different ways. And just the, his own popularity, his appeal was a contradiction, contradiction in its, of itself. And it makes it very clear. You really get a feel for why this was the only period in time that this would have worked and had the effect it did anyway, that it yeah. really appealed to that punk and arty crowd and the Andy Warhol crowd and all that who were like, this, I don't know what this thing is, but I think I love it. <laughs> and he, and he, he also helped put a a nail in the last of the 1950s. Yeah. Which you you, you see how long it lasts, really. And, you know, his, his, not conflicts with his parents, but, you know, his parents' inability to understand what it was he was doing and him walking away from them for a long time. But then they accept them accepting him back. And he, it does seem that he was a really charming guy. I mean, yeah, there's, there's more than enough stories that aren't just, you know, the eating poop at the end of Pink Flamingos. That, sure. Although it does have 
a great explanation of how difficult it was to get a dog to shit on command. That was very uh, funny. And how just sad Divine looks on the set, just going, <laughs> it's cold and this dog won't poo. And I really... I'm only doing this for a dare and what was I thinking? And, well, and it's because he would do anything John Waters asked him to yeah. do. I mean, oh, like I said, really, you know, you, you it really puts Waters... I, I could have done with a little bit more of that. Yeah, well, Almost like, a My Best Fiend take on, you know, Herzog and Kinski. Yeah, but in reverse. Almost. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it, there, if you don't know the story and the scene, you'll probably have to go back and look up a lot of who these people are. Yeah. So I think the only one really is, you know, Tab Hunter is interviewed. Um, yeah, who was is, an old marquee, marquee star in the 50s who Divine loved and then was out of work, basically, by the time, like... Divine was a big enough star that they had money to do some films and put them in polyester. Yeah. And you're like, right, that guy was a huge, like, yeah, okay. But yeah, <laughs> if, if you don't know who Mink Stoll is, the film doesn't tell you. No. And you'll have to go and look that up, which is kind of a, it, it's, it's one of these problems of a film which knows it's talking to its audience and kind of, if you aren't the audience you're not necessarily going to become the audience. I think that's a little bit restricted. The only other character they really, like, spend the time to explain who they were was Edith Massey, who was, of course, Mm. long since dead when they made this. But even then, they spend barely any time on her. So it was like, why did you explain her but not someone so much like Mink Stoll, who had a so much bigger and long-lasting part in the life of Divine? Yeah. I don't know. This could, I mean, and it's, it's not a long documentary. It could easily have been 20 minutes longer. Oh, sure. And I still would have been. I mean, I I enjoyed it. I, I mean, did it too. Fascinating. We both found a lot of stuff out that we had no. And we're the kind of people who actually know stuff about Divine. It's, and we're all going. I didn't know that. It's That's just exciting. fun to watch. Yeah. Ultimately, this documentary. It's very colorful. It's got lots of funny as hell stories in it, and it ends on such a bittersweet kind of tragic note that you know it is touching. You know, yeah. you'll go into this going, "Why am I going to give a shit about this giant?" like angry obnoxious drag queen at the end you're gonna feel like crying for him yeah so really got to recommend i am divine i thought it was Absolutely. quite good uh another movie i think that uh is one of the better ones we're taking a look at but not for everybody <laughs> it's gonna be a touch of sin now this is a chinese crime film came out in 2013 by uh, do you want to say his name because i always i'm told i always do it wrong so. uh jean Kay? That sounds about right. That's somewhere near. I am sorry, entire population of China. <laughs> it was nominated for the Palm d'Or at the 2013 Cannes Film Festival, uh, and but it did win Best Screenplay by the director, uh, who is apparently one of those guys I didn't know anything about. I've never seen any of his films, but apparently he's considered to be one of the biggest f- directors in the world with the sort of like art film world, if you will, yeah. to put a vague and meaningless term to it. Arty types, you know, who like to go see movies where things happen and people cry, but nothing ever explodes. I, I want to smoke a galois and, and wear a wear a beret and complain about Woody Allen's early films. <laughs> well, you don't need to smoke a galois and Yeah, but you've got to complete the whole thing. <laughs> uh, this is a... Uh, not triptych, what's the word for it when it's quartet? four pieces? A quartet, there thank you, go. of stories that all they vaguely connect. They cross over the tiniest, tiniest bit. Yeah. Um, they're really, it's all about theme here. It's all set in current time, and apparently they're all based very loosely on true events that actually happened, if you will, which makes it certainly, that's good to know going into it, because it makes these stories a lot more interesting, even though it also draw, draws on mythology and wuxia, apparently. Yeah. 
I don't understand the degree to which it does, but then again, I'm not deeply immersed in the history of that culture. Um, but you know what? Forget about all that. And it's one of those movies you just watch and just kind of let it happen because the movie's about situations spiraling out of control really quickly and turning to violence, you know, and it, all four are violent, have some kind of violent denouement to yeah. it, but not in ways you usually see coming. I mean, it's, it's really, it's a morality play about contemporary China. Um, and it's been perceived as kind of a, an attack on the growth of capitalism in China, because there are things about, um, state owned and locally owned. Well, the opening story is about a state owned mine, which is sold off. Yeah. And all the people in the village are promised, um, promised cash from it never materializes. And one guy finally goes, well, you know, I'm not going to be able to have the people who've taken all the money be prosecuted. I'm just going to go out and shoot them. And this guy went out and shot. I think it was in, in, I, I did look this up a little bit. He shot like 14 people. And, and the movie it, shows it rather brutally. Yeah. Uh, which I thought, because I'm a sick bastard, was the best sequence of the four. But. It's beautifully, <laughs> beautifully put together. I think that is the strongest sequence. But then there's, you know, references to, uh, the, uh, the spate of suicides at Foxconn, who, which is a company that provides, uh, electronic components for a lot of U.S. firms. That was a big fuss a few years ago when people were suddenly realizing, you know, this was the firm that was supplying Apple, yeah. uh, with a lot of iPhone components. So uh, this is all taken from the headline stuff, but there is this element of kind of weird Chinese classicism and there's, you know, references to Chinese opera in there and, and it's, it is beautiful to look at, oh, particularly yeah. the opening sequence. But it, it's a very bleak take on you know, how authoritarian and autocratic China is. And I'm kind of surprised in a lot of ways that it, it got through the Chinese censors, who well, can be very sensitive. Not only did it get through the Chinese censors, but this director before, I think the movie before this was the first film that he didn't make illegally. Oh. <laughs> like all the others before this were very much like not with the approval of the Chinese government, done on his own. Uh, and I, apparently, I don't know what it was. I guess it was because he kept getting noticed like as being such a, you know, inf you know, important director overseas. They finally said, well, we may not like what he's saying, but I guess it just looks better if we put our stamp of approval on him. We say, see, we're, we're okay government. We don't mind a little bit of criticism. Yeah. I, I guess. I mean, this thing isn't like really pointing its fingers at the government per se. It's, it's the inst, it, you know, it's the, it's the whole culture, the whole institution. Yeah. And it is kind of odd that he's picked these four stories to very lightly fictionalize. Yeah. Particularly with the, um, the mining one, that, which mm -hmm. is really pretty much spot on the nose. Yeah. But it, it'd be kind of like having a film where you're, you know, for a Western audience where you go, Oh, that guy's Trayvon Martin, and suddenly we're doing the Edward Snowden story. And it's like half-hour stories that very lightly interconnect, like one person drives up a road, and then they're in the other story. Well, see, right? in China, though, when they had their version of The Twilight Zone, it was all just socio-political commentary stories. There was uh, no supernatural or anything. It was, they loved that shit. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. It's totally not. <laughs> Wouldn't that be funny if that was true? Though? It would be. It would be like, what a weird culture. That's what imagine happens in the real will. universe version of the show. Don't have to imagine, if you will, this <laughs> world where a man is poor but wants it all. And then shoots people. And then shoots yeah, people. It's, it, this is not a date movie. Uh, uh, no. Unless you want your, your date is uh, taking a uh, course in Asian studies. And really, this is of all... And I love Asian cinema, but this is one of the most insular... 
ones I've seen. This is made for the Chinese people to see, uh, or at least people who are incredibly familiar with what's been going on over there and their history with the history of their film. I mean, even the name is a, a take on a very famous wuxia film called A Touch of Zen, yeah. you know, because there's elements of that in here somehow. <laughs> it's it's not for your casual Chinese film watcher. No. Is all I'm saying. I, and yeah, don't be fooled by the cover, which does make it look like a a, a sequel to the Yellow Sea. This is yep. not this is not a this is not a, a Chinese gangster movie. This is no. a you know, very intelligent I, and I, I although I'm kinda of surprised it won for best screenplay because I thought the screenplay is almost the weakest part of it. Yeah. Because it's it's so it loosely is. interconnected. The performances are extremely strong. No, you're right, the, the the screenplay is by far the weakest part of it, but it's the performances, yeah, your performances are strong, the cinematography is absolutely gorgeous. And there's just some stuff in there that's you want to understand. It's so interesting the decisions he makes. Like the story with uh the woman who works at a brothel, but she's just a uh uh, you know, like she's like a secretary or whatever, like a like a receptionist there. And when some guys come at her, basically like, oh, we're gonna, you know, we don't care, we're we're dudes, we're gonna get them have our way with you. It turns into this very stylish martial arts film for like twenty seconds, yeah, and then goes back to this total real thing. And it's like, what does that mean? <laughs> I think that that was the director's point was to create a movie where where he's saying, well. The traditional narrative ways we deal with problems and issues and cultural questions in Chinese cinema and Chinese culture, we can still apply those, but we have to keep asking those questions. The, yeah. This is kind of the in you know the opening sequence. It's the same story that you've had of for you know since you know the Jade Emperor. You 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 have local bureaucrats who take all the money, and you've got one guy who suddenly goes, "No, I'm not going to." sit back and take this well that's what those stories have always been this is just in a contemporary setting and and you know for example yeah i mean the the girl who kills the two guys who are trying to rape her that you know that's an ancient story in a contemporary setting and it's almost like he's saying we haven't changed we haven't evolved capitalism and solving everything free markets haven't changed anything it's still local bureaucrats but now we call them the guy that owns the mine not the guy that runs the mine and i think you know, that's fascinating to watch, um, and it is beautiful. But it, yeah. So the perfect film to invite over some of your friends, have like a whole case of beer, and just laugh and laugh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next up is a film that probably is the only way to watch that, is Nurse 3D. 3D. Uh I wish I had kind of seen this in a theater with a group of like really drunk people who were in the mood to appreciate this type of really silly 3D stuff because uh, I had a hard time getting into it at home. It's a it's an odd film, and it was one of these ones that was getting really highly touted for a long time before it came out, and then it kind of disappeared. disappeared. Yeah, well, it's there were certain critics in the horror community specifically. I'm not going to name any names, no, nope. but who get really hyperbolic when there's like a little film that attacks that talks to their particular fetishes <laughs> and won't shut up about it. And I think a lot of people heard about this early on and it got more distribution than it quite frankly deserved because of that. But that's not all. Apparently the 
it was based on the photography of one of the heads of Lionsgate, the, the chief marketing officer, <laughs> inspired by the photography of Tim Palin, who is Lionsgate's chief, chief marketing officer. Because that's so, an awesome reason to greenlight a film. Okay. Somebody. We love you, Lionsgate. You know somebody's got to be sleeping with Paz de la Huerta, too, because this, this mystifying thing that somebody is determined to make her into a star. Yeah. I just don't get. I mean, it's she has a great body. I'll hand her that. She's the the best definition of a butterface Hollywood has, if you ask me. And and the makeup choices they put Ooh. on her were. There's a point where it just looks like she ran into some brown pancake. Yeah, she was, was just really and it, Homer really, Simpson's makeup gun. It's. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to be cruel, but he, like, there's literally this point where you can actually see the merge lines on the makeup on her neck. And I'm like, was, did somebody just give up halfway through? This is really, really weird and not doing any favors. Cause the whole thing is she is supposed to be insanely sexual. Yeah. She is, um, this serial killer. This is, you know, it's single white female. For a moment and more so. And more, it's, yeah, it's single white female put through like a nine inch nails music video or something i don't know yeah she's yeah. this <laughs> monster monster magnet probably more active. nurse who uh has decided that she is going to kill every man who has an affair with anybody ever um yeah which uh, and it's kind of explained why but it's really it's she's just crazy as a bag of just, hammers it's one of those like the, it, they would have been better served if they had said less about yeah. why quite frankly Oh, and, and they couldn't say more. There is a constant voiceover narrative from her. Yeah. That just lays everything out. And I'm like, really? Well, that's not... so lazy anyway. Yeah. So. And it's, it's not even well presented. She just delivers these lines so flat and then she will suddenly kind of go cooing. And I'm like, well, okay, now you're trying to be sexy. And it's really not, I just, not working. I even thought on, uh, 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 what the hell's the name of the HBO show? Uh, something Kingdom. Boardwalk uh, Empire. Empire, that's yeah. it, yeah. Why did I come from Kingdom, Empire, Kingdom, whatever. The, her role on there, I was like, okay, so did you just need to get an actress who would be naked all the time? Because she came across as just really kind of stupid and not all that sexy to me on there. And she did seem to have lost her underwear for most of this film. Uh, she lost most of her clothes at one time or another. Uh, she certainly, you know, I'll hand it to her. Even though she can't act her way out of a wet paper bag, no. um, she doesn't need to get out of a wet paper bag because she's already there. Starkers just walk around naked. She earned her paycheck just based on nudity alone in this film. If that's what you're coming to see, if you got the hots for Paz de, de la Huerta, you get to see every bit of her. In 3D. In 3D. And it, uh, I have to say, I, I don't have the problem with 3D that a lot of people have. I, you know, having sat at home and, and watched. Um, Pacific Rim in 3D. I can honestly say, when handled well and part of the artistic, part of the creative design, it it really does add something. When it when it's done but right, this really is. Look, I'm poking you in the eye. This is old school. Scalpels are coming towards you. Blue and red Ooh. glass techniques ah. of 3D. You know, and it's it's, it's all so predictable. Uh, Katrina Bowden's kind of good as the the object of her obsession slash playing the really good girl who they let you know early on you're never going to see naked because even though everyone else in the film gets naked because even in a shower scene for some reason she's inexplicably wearing underwear yes 
But then there's the hilarity that you can tell that she's the character you're supposed to be concentrating on because one of the first moments is a nursing graduation class and everybody else is wearing a regular nurse's outfit. Yeah. And she seems to be wearing the finest Fredericks of Hollywood yeah. uh, version of a nurse outfit. And it's like <laughs> three inches too short and it's like uh, four <sighs> sizes too small. It's like, did that shrink in the wash? <laughs> And it, that's the weird thing that you know, this is a film that is about a sexually charged serial killer, um, and it's profoundly unsexy. Yeah, which no, is repeatedly. Weird. How do you just, miss they, so they're badly? trying to make it where like you get turned on, even though you know something horrible is going to happen, and then the something horrible happens. But they get the timing all wrong for those scenes. It happens too fast, or it takes too long, and it's just awkward, or it's just just a weird scene. That why would that be sexy in the first place? Type of thing. Like I said, I'm not re- just really not into that actress to begin with. I just every time she's on screen, I'm like. Ugh. If you just get somebody else to ADR her, <laughs> I might be able to get into this. I mean, even Kathleen Turner, let her do her voice, because <laughs> Kathleen Turner's in this for 30 seconds or so. And I don't think even actually she's credited. I think she literally just turns up as a favor to somebody. Uh, yeah, I guess so. I mean, uh, they got Judd Nelson, who has a slightly bigger part. Um, part of part of Judd Nelson's campaign of turning up in films as an angry Judd Nelson-like character. Um, which he keeps doing now. He keeps appearing in horror films for like 20 seconds, taking a check and going, yeah, see you suckers. And I'm like, I'm kind of admire you for that, sir. <laughs> you have no pride, but you've got a paycheck. Well, Good you for get, you. You've got to do what you got to do. <laughs> There's a lot of that going on here. Martin Donovan, of course, appears. He's the same kind of guy. He'll be like, every once in a while, he appears in something really good. But most of the time, he's taking little roles in crap like this. Uh, Michael Eklund, it's just like, okay. It's, I, I'll say, I mean, we haven't even said this. She gets, Paz de la Huerta's character, Abby Russell, gets obsessed with this new nurse played by Katrina Bowden, and it turns into a single For white no female reason. type of thing, just because the movie requires it to happen. And then it doesn't make any sense because she's really angry about people who cheat um, on on their partners. Mm-hmm. So she sets her up to cheat on her partner. Well, she actually cheats with her on her yeah. partner. And I'm like well, hang on, where's the logic? And in the first 20 minutes, I'm kind of going, there's a big plot hole. And I, how am I, did nobody see this? Is anybody going to come back and explain how this makes sense in some, no, you're not? They because never Because you don't care. You're never too busy did. staring at Paz's boobs. So that's the only way you could get through this. Then I'll say there's some nice, whoever did the, uh, uh, cinematography managed to get some neat stuff with colors. Yeah. I thought there's some beautiful work done on that, but, and there's some okay gory scenes towards the end if you're in this for gore. Because for a movie that's really selling itself as being super bloody horror film, it's really not all that super bloody. No, and then it kind of blows its gasket on that in like the last five minutes with, yeah. where she's running through the hospital just randomly stabbing people, yeah. pulling tubes out Which of Which is one of those, like, if she's supposed uh... to be so... Like they they play off like oh she's so she's like Hannibal Lecter she's got this whole plan so elaborate and then when she's e- even mildly approached getting caught she just freaks out and just like you know what fuck it I'm going all I'm just gonna stab everything yeah she just, she even well though, just go, I could have talked my way out of this one at this one at this point but no I'm just gonna start stabbing everyone and again kind of like Grudge Match. It does seem that some people were in different films, uh, because it's somebody who turns up as an incredibly chirpy uh, HR direct, and she really is from a different film. Yeah. I have no idea why she was there, other than to provide a little bit of narrative tension, but it was like, wh- what? And the be- by far the best thing, <coughs> the only thing that really kept me going through this, 
Niecy Nash turns up as the sassy black nurse and is phenomenal in it. And I would like to see her get her own spin-off film and going, which basically called White Serial Killers Are Crazy. <laughs> yeah, the only thing this is, meaning is a, this is missing is a meta moment where she acknowledges she's in a really terrible film <laughs> made by some white dude. Like, what the white people always making crazy movies? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Who knew that you'd ever watch a film and go, you know the best thing? Niecy Nash. Well, that's happened. <laughs> that's it here. <laughs> Well, you know what, guys? That is it from the parallel universe for this week. Uh, afraid we're going to have to set our dials to turn you back to the regular version, the boring-ass universe version of uh, Chris and, and Brian, who, you know, I do admittedly miss ever since the vacuum cleaner incident. So don't want to – let's not be specific. Come on. It's, his body's barely even cold yet. But anyway, uh, back to you, Brian. Bye. What in the blue what? fuck was that? Um, well, I don't know for sure, but – I sounds a lot to me like as a resident expert on parallel and alternate dimensions at the one of us.net offices, like we've accidentally stumbled into a porthole into a alternate version of uh, our world. And it sounds like you're not in it. Sorry about that. You know what? At some point, I'm going to have you explain this to me again, but with Twinkies, because I feel like that always works for me. Yeah, no problem. I will make sure to go get some uh, Twinkies. Maybe the alternate universe has ones with caramel. In the oh, that would be amazing. That would be so good. That was really weird. I probably shouldn't push that button again, but I feel like I'm going to push that button a lot for the rest of our run. I, I can't help but feel like you probably will. Anyway, just going to set that aside for now and uh, wrap up the show by doing what we always do, which is our giveaway. And uh, we got something really special for you this week, and that thing is, oh, wait, we're not going to tell you because it's a digital noise grab bag. That's right. We're shoving a bunch of stuff in a bag, and we're giving it to you. We're going to send you four releases from Digital Noise Past, and you don't have a clue what they are. Aren't you lucky? You well, are super lucky. I guess you're going to have to wait and find out. <laughs> you, you actually don't know whether you're lucky or not. <laughs> this is going to be a complete grab bag. Look at that. See how yeah. that works? Anywho, so the way our giveaways work, as you might know by now, is we do sort of a writing prompt on Twitter. So the first thing you're going to want to do if you want to win this grab bag giveaway is to follow us on Twitter at one of us net. And then here's what I want you to do. Since a grab bag is kind of a random collection of things and we're going with four of them in this grab bag, I want you to tweet at us with the four most random actors you could think of to cast as the Fantastic Four. You don't have to do a lot of explaining. You can just tell us. Which, you know, who's playing what character and, you know, which four actors completely randomly assembled would play the Fantastic Four. They can't four. all be Muppets. They can't all be Muppets. <laughs> but if one of them is a Muppet, sure, why not? And then you're just going to hashtag that grab bag giveaway. We will pick our favorite. We will send that person the grab bag. And please, this is still open to U.S. residents only. Sorry. Sorry. Yay, show! Yay, show. We did it. We it only did. took us till three in the morning, but we Better fucking did late it. than never. <laughs> yeah, right? Ugh. <laughs> Anyway, guys, thank you so much for joining us. Once again, uh, Digital Noise is on Twitter at DigiNoiseCast. The show, as well as all of the One of Us content, is available both on iTunes now and Stitcher. You can also follow us individually on Twitter. I'm at Salisbury. I'm at Chris Cox Critic. And then, of course, we have the Facebook page, facebook.com slash oneofusnet. Please become a subscriber. Please do use our Amazon links. Hat in hand, guys. We just want to keep delivering content to you, and uh, we would really appreciate your support. That's true. And if you don't, I'm going to sing Rainbow Connection start to finish like 30 times in a row. And I can't really sing that. Don't, well. please don't, guys, please don't make that happen. I can't, Why I can't take that. There's in. so many songs no. about rainbow. I better wrap this show up as I usually do Somebody quickly by saying no release is too big, no release is too small. From Criterion to Catastrophe, we review them all. I can't remember the next line. Good night, Greasy. <laughs>